Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21 this morning. So uh, let's read those verses and then we'll pray and we'll consider what they have to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Most gracious Father, we thank you for this good news that we've just read. That Christ became sin for us, that we might become righteous even the righteousness of God. I pray that you would help me as I preach this morning, that my words may be clear, that they may go out in the power of your spirit, that you would illumine all of our hearts and minds, that the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we come to this passage, Paul is is continuing this kind of weird cycle of of defending himself, but then kind of undergirding his defense with really, really rich theology. And I say it's a weird cycle uh, because it, it makes it at times rather difficult to figure out how the verses kind of relate to each other. And in fact, this is a passage that that it's easy to read and, and kind of just wonder if Paul was just kind of had a moment of like free association and just wrote a verse and then came up with something else and wrote that and then came up with something else and wrote that. And in fact, when, when you read the commentaries on this section, there's a few places where, you know, they may all be kind of going along, but then all of a sudden they just branch off in a thousand different directions and everybody's like, I think this is happening. I think this is happening. I think, because it is a little bit hard to understand exactly what it is, like how it is that Paul's kind of building his argument. And so here's where we have to kind of make a decision, kind of a hermeneutical and an interpretive decision. And that's this. Are we going to assume that Paul, like, for a second, like, 
kind of lost it and was just writing random things? Or are we going to assume that Paul is putting together some kind of coherent argument and that the parts actually do relate to form a beautiful whole? Now, I'm not saying that Paul is incapable of of writing some random stuff. Peter himself says that sometimes Paul's hard to understand, and I agree completely with Peter on that. But I think we can give Paul the benefit of the doubt. And if we start digging, what we see is that that Paul is, is putting together this incredible argument here that comes back to right where we started this series, that we're new creations in Christ. That that's the, the, the basis that undergirds kind of everything. So remember, we ended last week with this verse about judgment. And then, but, but we said that this isn't Paul saying, oh, actually, just kidding about all the grace stuff. We're actually going to be judged by our works. No, because of that judgment, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So he's saying, look, there is a judgment. That's a real thing. So we're going to try to convince you of something that's going to help you in that judgment because a judgment is coming. And so I want to convince you of something that you really need to understand, that you really need to know, that you really need to take hold of. And that's what we're trying to do. Because we know that God is just. We we know the fear of the Lord. We know that he's righteous. We know that he's holy. We know that that, that he he, he can't turn away from sin without dealing with it. Because we know that, we want to convince you of something. But what we are... It's known to God. So so he makes that statement, and then he kind of dives right back into this defense of himself. What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to you. Remember, there was this tension between Paul and and his ministry partners and these people that later in the letter he's going to call kind of pejoratively super apostles who showed up and were super impressive, and and everybody was like, oh, man, they're such good speakers, and and, and they're fun to look at, and their, 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 their oratory is great. But the problem was... They also kind of were in a little bit too much to the law and were kind of trying to attach life to that, apparently. And so Paul's saying, look, I get we're not that, but what we are is known to God. And I hope that it's known to your conscience. I hope that even though, Paul's saying, that even though you're being persuaded by these super impressive people, I hope you know that what we are is saved. That what we are, even though we may not be as impressive, even though I may write these really hard letters, these really harsh letters, and, and be really powerful in these letters, that, and, and weak when I show up to talk to you, that that doesn't change my standing before God. I know what I am. God, we, we know what we are. We, what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known to you. And then he begins, we're not commending ourselves. Remember, that was part of the problem. These people were showing up with with these letters of commendation, like saying how impressive they were and how everybody should listen to them, right? It's kind of like the the blurb on the back of a book where he went to school here and he's written these other books and he's done all this great stuff. And that's why you need to read this book because it's so great and and they're so brilliant. That's how these people were showing up. And Paul's saying, look, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to make myself impressive. I'm not trying to make my crew impressive. But I'm trying to give you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. See, there's the issue. There were these people that were showing up and were pointing to their own impressiveness as the reason they should be listened to. They were pointing to the outward appearance of their ministry as the reason that they should be listened to. 
And Paul's saying, no, no, no. We want you to understand that the thing to boast about in someone is that God has changed their heart. That's what's amazing. It's not hard to get a group up. You can get any impressive magnetic leader and they can gather a group and they can lead the group into all kinds of things. What's impressive is when a sinful heart, when a dead stony heart has been replaced with a living heart of flesh. That's what's worth boasting about. Not building some grand organization by your, you know, magnetism and and leadership abilities and, and oratorical skills. No, what's impressive is that God changes hearts. So he's telling them, we're not trying to give you a reason to boast about us. We're not that impressive. We want you to boast about what God has done in us. Now, remember who Paul was. I mean, this is a weighty statement. He was killing Christians. He hated the movement of the cross. He hated what was going on as the gospel spread. He he, he was the one who oversaw the first martyr that we have recorded. He was there overseeing it. Paul's saying what's impressive is not that I can show up with oratorical skill and theological knowledge. What's impressive, what's worth boasting about, is that God can show up and change the heart of one who sought to kill his followers. That's what's amazing. That's what we want you to understand. And then in verse 13, this is one of the places where where it seems like all of a sudden he's like, man, where are you going, Paul? If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And and the, the, the explanations of this are kind of fun to read because it, it's kind of hard to figure out what exactly he's doing here. And, and they, 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 they range all over the place. And, and a lot of them kind of are trying to make, like if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. They're trying to make it this situation where we're like, Paul is having some like kind of private Holy Ghost party. And it's kind of like, you know, Super charismatic for a minute. He's like, oh, no, no, that's for God. When we show up and speak where you can understand, that's for you. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what's happening here. Because when you look at the word uh, that's behind this beside ourselves, it's the word for amaze. Exististhemi. Existemi is what it is in Greek. Y'all don't care. That's the word. And it's used 17 times in the New Testament. 17 times. Almost every time... It's used about being amazed at who Jesus is or being amazed at what he has done or being amazed at the effect of what the gospel has done in somebody's life. And there's one very, very important passage uh, where this word is used in Acts 10.45 where where the, uh, the apostles are amazed because the Gentiles received the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, remember, this would have been a profound paradigm shift for everybody, that the gospel was going out to Gentiles, that, that, this, that this religion that, that is rooted in the Jewish tradition and, and the Jewish scriptures and, and the Jewish God, and Yahweh, and all that, that all of a sudden the doors are being blown open for the whole world. They couldn't figure it out. They were amazed at it in Pentecost. The same word is used when they're going, wait a minute. Aren't these all Galileans? 
Why are we all hearing this message in our own language? It's the same word that's being used. And all throughout the book of Acts, they're amazed because the gospel keeps going out to people that they didn't think the gospel was supposed to go out to, that they didn't think the Messiah was coming for. But, but here they come, and they're being saved, and their hearts are being changed, and they're, they're, they're experiencing new life, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And they're like, it's amazing. And Paul's saying, if we're amazed at, what's God, at what God's doing, if we're amazed, it's, it's for him. We're amazed at his grace pouring out to the world. But if we show up and speak rationally, it's so that you can understand what that message is that is doing this. What that message is that's going out to the world. If we're amazed, we're praising God because we didn't expect this. Paul especially didn't expect this. He thought, no, 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 Yahweh is for the Jews. And all of you people that are trying to claim this Jesus guy, we're just going to kill you. And then all of a sudden his eyes are opened. If we're amazed, it's for God. It's, it's because of what God is doing. If we're in our right mind, it's, it's for you that you might understand what it is that God is doing. Then in verse 14, he begins to shift to the theological argument that undergirds this. For if we are beside ourselves, oh, that's verse 13 again, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Now, this isn't their love for Christ. It's Christ's love for them. That's what's going on here. Paul's saying that's what, that's what controls us. That's why we're amazed, at, amazed for God and what he's doing as the gospel goes out and more and more people come in. As the gospel goes to, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're compelled, we're controlled by the love of Christ. That he loves us so much. And, and that his love extends to everyone. That's what controls us. And, and it's fascinating because it's, it's just different than how we think. Or it, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm alone on this branch. It, 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 it's not the law that controls him. That's not what's driving him forward. It's Jesus and his love for people. That's what's driving him forward. The love of Christ controls because we've concluded this. And this is one of the other verses that that people kind of trip over themselves, uh, especially Calvinists, because we don't, we don't, want, we don't want Jesus' love to be too big. Like, and, and for too many people sometimes, it's what it feels like anyway. Uh, and so for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And when, when you read good Reformed commentaries, that they, they aren't really that helpful because all we want to do is make sure that you know that, that the all there is, is the, the elect, Right? One of the commentators was very helpful. It's like, yeah, Paul's not trying to define who the all is here. His point is something else. And here's what his point is. If Jesus died for everyone, Jew and Gentile, people all over the world, that, then, then we can conclude one thing from that. They're all dead. They all need a savior. If Jesus had to die for them, if he died for Jews and Gentiles, guess what? They were dead in their sin. 
See, I think Paul is saying what he said in Romans 5 about the imputation of Adam's sin to everyone. I think he's making the same point here. And it fits with what he's already said. If we're amazed, it's for God. What are they amazed about? They're amazed the gospel is going out to the whole wide world. Why are they making this known? Because what they've concluded by hearing the gospel message, what they've concluded by seeing what it is that Jesus did, what they've concluded by considering the scriptures, is that if Jesus died for all, then then that means everybody was dead. In other words, there's no one that's getting out of this alive, save through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way forward. And then in verse 15, he begins to unpack this a little bit. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So so now the the group does get smaller because now he's talking about those who live. He he died for all these people that, that, that those who live might not live for themselves. Now, there's two ways that we can hear this verse. We can hear this verse as, as, as some kind of law. Of like, oh, go die to yourself and, and go empty yourself. And, and, and we, we sh- like, I get it, we should. The Bible talks about that. But, but when we hear it as a law, it becomes this oppressive reality and we miss the good news here. The, the other way we can hear it is that we're freed from being enslaved to our sinful selves. I don't have to live for me any longer. I don't have to make it about me. I don't have to to try to secure myself any longer. I don't have to come up with an identity for myself. I don't have to come up with a hope for myself. I'm free from the oppression of me. I get to live for Jesus, who loves me, who died for me, and who rose for me. You get to live for Jesus. You don't have to live to, to console your flesh. You don't have to live trying to convince yourself, no, it's going to be okay. You're really not that bad. It, it, no, you get to look and say, no, no, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. And I get to live for him. I'm freed from the tyranny of my sinful flesh and what it says about me. I'm free from the tyranny of all my past mistakes and what I think they say about me. I'm free from the tyranny of the accusations and the condemnation that comes and what I feel it makes me. I'm free from all that. I don't have to live for that any longer. I'm freed from it. That's why Jesus died. And that's why he rose. So he continues in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Notice he's driving back at this issue. Are we going to look at outward appearance? Are we going to look at the flesh? Are we going to look at whether someone's impressive and and has it all together? Or or whether or not they're a Jew or a Gentile? Are we going to look at whether or not they're a man or a woman? Are we going to look at whether they're slave or free? Are we going to look at these fleshy things and make a decision about God's love for them based on that? Or or are we going to do that no more? And Paul says, yeah, we're, we're not doing that anymore. We're not regarding people according to the flesh any longer. 
We're not making a decision about who Christ is for based on the flesh any longer. We're not making a decision about about who the love of God is for based on the flesh any longer. See, what Paul's trying to drive at here is this free offer of the gospel. No, no, no. It's not like what these super apostles were teaching and and, and what happened in Galatians. It's not that you have to become a Jew in order to be loved by Christ. No, Paul says that's not the case at all. We're not regarding people according to flesh. This is why in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, he makes that great statement that, that in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's driving at. And we need to hear this for a whole lot of reasons. Because because this means we're not regarding people any longer according to their political party. We're not regarding people any longer according to their ethnicity. We're not regarding people any longer according to their education. We're not regarding people any longer according to their success in this life. We're not regarding people any longer according to any of that stuff. That's not how we're considering folks any longer and whether they're worthy of Christ and whether Christ loves them. We're not regarding people any longer as to whether they've made a complete and utter mess of their life or they've lived respectably. That's not how we're going to think about people any longer. We're going to think about people as the objects of God's love that he sent his son to die for them, to save them from their sins. That's how we're going to regard people. Now, I want to make a further application. We're not going to regard ourselves according to our flesh any longer either. And that may be the hardest person to disregard according to our flesh. I'm not going to regard myself and, and, and all my past failures and all my weaknesses and all my, I'm not going to regard myself according to that any longer. I'm going to regard myself according to Christ because he died for that. He died for that. Now, might we need to process and, and has our past affected us? And, and do we need to think through how it is? Yes, yes, we do. But who I am is not my weaknesses. Who I am is not my failures. Who I am is not my past. Who you are is not your weaknesses. Who you are is not your failures. Who you are is the beloved of Jesus Christ. Who I am is the beloved of Jesus Christ. See, that's what it means to to no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. It doesn't mean that we become colorblind. It doesn't mean that we whatever. No, no, no. It means that we recognize that the gospel is for everyone. We don't look at people in the Solomon Islands and go, y'all are too far away. That's going to be too much trouble and it's too hard. We don't look at people of Muslim faith and go, oh no, you're you're so bad. And y'all have done so many horrible things. We don't look at people struggling with their sexuality and say, oh no, no, God has nothing for you. 
We don't look at people on the other side of whatever imaginary aisle we've built and say, I don't know how you can be over there and be a Christian. We don't regard people according to the flesh anymore. We regard people according to the fact that Jesus came and died for sinners the world over. That's how we think about people. They are someone who gets to hear the love of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how we think about people. That's what it means to to not regard people according to the flesh any longer. He says we once regarded Christ this way. And and Paul may be talking kind of biographically. I I once thought like, yeah, he was just a dude that did some stuff and people started falling. But not anymore. He opened my eyes. And we don't think about him that way anymore either. We regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And here's the reality for Christians. It's not just that that we're, we're worthy of hearing the gospel. It's that because we've been united to Christ by faith, we're new. We're new. The old has passed away. So, so, so it gets even better. On, on the front end, on, on, the, on the evangelistic end, we don't look at people and judge by their appearance, judge by their flesh, whether they're worthy of hearing the gospel. No, we don't do that. But on, on, the, on the having received Christ in, we don't look at people and see anything of, of someone that's in Christ other than them being a new creation. Do they need to deal with their stuff? Yeah, deal with your stuff. But deal with it as a new creation, as someone who's been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, as someone who's been redeemed, as someone who's been loved, so much that the God of all creation sent his only son to die for you to make you new you're not any longer a valley of dry bones that ship has sailed the prophets have come the preachers have come and they've announced Jesus and they have prophesied the gospel over you and sinews have joined up on you and breath has been breathed into you through the preaching of the word by the spirit working through it and you are a new creation no longer dead no longer defined by all the old stuff that we still look to to understand and define ourselves we're new in Jesus Christ We're new. Might we need to make amends in this world? Sure. But we do it as new creations, not as old. The old has passed away. The new has come. Verse 18. All this is from God. Let that soak in. All of this. All of the being made new, all of the sinews being put on the bones, all of the breath being breathed in and given life, all of it, all of the love for sinners, it's all from God. It's not from man. It's it's what he's doing. He's, as, as one podcaster said, he's the subject of all the verbs in the gospel. He's the one who does it. All of this is from God 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There was an issue, Paul said. We weren't reconciled to each other. There was, there was tension in the relationship. There, there was sin. There was separation. There was brokenness. We sat under his just wrath and curse because of our sin. But through Christ, that's been done away with. Through Christ, he has reconciled us to himself. We don't sit under his condemnation anymore. We don't sit scared of his wrath anymore. We're not separated from him anymore. There's not that tension in the relationship because we've been fully reconciled to God Almighty, the holy, holy, holy judge of all creation through Jesus Christ. Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is why, and I've said this before in this series, this is why we're Christ Church Conway. Not Law Church Conway, or Moses Church Conway, or Old Testament Church Conway, or whatever silly thing you want to come up with to make the point. Because we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, which is the proclamation of Jesus and his finished work for his people. That's what I'm to proclaim to you every week. That he lived and he died and he rose for you. And you in him are reconciled completely to God Almighty. That was the ministry the apostles were given, and that's the only ministry that the church has ever rightly had. It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ who reconciled the world to God Almighty. All this is from God. He reconciled us. He gave us the mystery of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now let's go back to verse 10. We're all going to stand before Christ, the judge. Now let's go back to verse 19. In Christ, our trespasses are not counted against us. Do you see what he's doing there? Do you see the beauty of what's happening? Will there be a judgment? Yes, there will be a judgment. But the beauty of it is that, as Scott Haveman says, the beauty of it is what transforms the believer, therefore, is that the judge, verses 10 and 11, is also the Savior. What we're looking at now. So here's how the judgment works. If you're in Christ, you go and you stand before Christ to be judged, good or evil. And he looks at you and he says, you're good. And you go, okay, why? And he says, because I died for you. And I'm not counting your trespasses against you because they were counted against me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. That's how the judgment goes for Christians. Fear not, dear Christian. Fear not. For the judge is your savior. And he will not count the trespasses against you that were counted against him. Therefore, Paul says, 
We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice what's happening here. There's going to be a judgment. Therefore, we're going to try to persuade you of something. If you stand before Jesus in him, the judge is your savior and your trespasses won't be counted against you. So everybody, are you listening? I'm imploring you now. That's a really strong word for I'm trying to convince you of something. I'm really passionate about this. I want you to believe me. Be reconciled to God. And you go, okay, how? How do I do that? Well, first, you notice that it's passive. It's not an active verb. It's not an active verb in the Greek either. Because it's God who does the reconciling. But, but, but how, do, how do I be reconciled to him? You believe in him. You look to him in faith. You confess and repent. And trust the promises. And why can you trust the promises? Because of what he says in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Just so we're all clear. Him who knew no sin is Jesus. He came and he lived perfectly under the law and never sinned. Tempted like we are, but without sin, the author of Hebrews says. God the Father, God Almighty, holy, 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 just God of all creation, made him who knew no sin, his own son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to be sin. All of it. All of the sin of his people. God made him who knew no sin to be that. That's what was going on on the cross. That's why Jesus had to cry out, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Because he was made to be sin. Because he had to endure the judgment. Because the wrath of God was poured out on him so that it wouldn't be poured out on you. The sin of Adam and your sin and my sin was imputed. It was credited to his account. And he hung there on the cross as a sinner, though he had never done anything wrong. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Why? So that in him, the one that he made to be sin, Jesus, so that in him, we who are totally depraved, we who have sinned our whole lives and loved it, we who have messed up in every kind of way, we who Paul tells us are inventors of sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was imputed to Jesus, credited to his account. And his righteousness, the very righteousness of God, is imputed to you, credited to your account, so that you stand righteous before God. That's the good news. That's why Paul's saying, no, 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 we're not considering people according to the flesh anymore. We're considering everybody worthy of hearing this message. We're compelled by this love. 
that Christ had for us. See, that's what drives us forward in evangelism. Not some guilt of, am I being a good Christian? No, 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 no. Forget that. It's that Christ loved us to the point of becoming sin in my place and in your place that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we, when we stand in judgment to receive good or evil, what we did in the flesh, we're no longer regarded according to the flesh, but according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the hope that you have. And that's the hope that defines who you are. That's the hope that drove Paul forward. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this word of life. We thank you for the amazement of the gospel. That all we can do is turn towards you and be amazed speechless, baffled by your grace poured out on sinners. And we ask that you would help us to turn towards each other and with rational words declare the grace of Christ that we might all be encouraged and all the more as we see the day drawing near. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.